Hello, and welcome to the April 2010 podcast. This is Dean Hess, editor of Respiratory Care. Sarah Forge will read the abstracts from this month's issue, and I will return with some commentary. We began this issue with the paper, Early Physical Activity in Intensive Care Unit Patients, by Borden and colleagues. They describe their experience in early rehabilitation of ICU patients and its effects on physiologic outcomes. They included all patients who stayed in their 14-bed medical ICU for greater than or equal to seven days and received invasive mechanical ventilation for greater than or equal to two days. The rehabilitation program included chair sitting, tilting up, with arm supported or unsupported, and walking. They collected vital signs before and after each intervention. Over a five-month period, they studied 20 patients after a median ICU stay of five days. A contraindication to the intervention was present on 43% of the days. Sedation, shock, and renal support were the most frequent contraindications. Complete data were obtained from 275 of 424 interventions, 33% of which were performed during mechanical ventilation. The chair-sitting intervention was the most frequent, followed by the tilting-up-with-arms-unsupported intervention, the walking intervention, and the tilting-up-arms-supported intervention. The chair-sitting intervention was associated with a significant decline in both heart rate and respiratory rate, whereas oxygen saturation measured via pulse oximetry and mean arterial blood pressure did not change significantly. Heart rate and respiratory rate similarly increased with tilting up. Heart rate and respiratory rate also increased with the walking intervention. The walking intervention significantly decreased oxygen saturation. An adverse event occurred in about 3% of 424 interventions, but none had harmful consequences. The authors conclude that early rehabilitation is feasible and safe in patients in the ICU for longer than one week. High-flow oxygen therapy in acute respiratory failure is by Roca et al. The objective of this study was to compare the comfort of oxygen therapy via high-flow nasal cannula versus via conventional face mask in patients with acute respiratory failure. Acute respiratory failure was defined as blood oxygen saturation less than 96% while receiving an FiO2 greater or equal to 0.5 via face mask. Oxygen was first humidified with a bubble humidifier and delivered via face mask for 30 minutes and then via high-flow nasal cannula with heated humidifier for another 30 minutes. At the end of each 30-minute period, they asked the patient to evaluate dyspnea, mouth dryness, and overall comfort on a visual analog scale. The authors enrolled 20 patients with a median age of 57 years. The total gas flow administered was higher with the high-flow nasal cannula than with the face mask. The high-flow nasal cannula was associated with less dyspnea and mouth dryness and was more comfortable. High-flow nasal cannula was associated with a higher PaO2 and a lower respiratory rate, but with no difference in PaCO2. The authors conclude that high-flow nasal cannula was better tolerated and more comfortable than a face mask. It is also associated with better oxygenation and lower respiratory rate. (music) 
Next, we have the paper, Automated Notification of Suspected Obstructive Sleep Apnea Patients to the Perioperative Respiratory Therapist, a pilot study by Ramachandran et al. They describe a system that identifies patients with suspected or documented obstructive sleep apnea, or OSA, and automatically alerts the perioperative respiratory therapist. Patients who presented for surgery were perioperatively assessed, and if the patient had an OSA diagnosis or OSA risk factors, the perioperative RT automatically received a paging alert after the surgery. The respiratory therapist reviewed the patient postoperatively and instituted CPAP or BiPAP as indicated. They collected data on triggers for the automated alerts and utilization of CPAP and BiPAP. They reviewed risk management data to analyze the effect of this intervention on post-surgical sudden-onset acute respiratory compromise. Of 7,422 patients who presented for surgery over a five-month period, 766 had an OSA diagnosis or OSA risk factors. There were, on average, seven to eight alerts per workday. On average, two patients per workday were treated with CPAP or BiPAP in the post-anesthesia care unit or the post-operative general ward as a result of the alerts. The median paging alert time was 10.30 a.m. There were no episodes of sudden onset post-operative acute respiratory compromise after institution of the OSA alert system. The authors conclude that, as part of a hospital-wide post-operative policy, the automated OSA alert system helps prevent sudden onset acute respiratory compromise in post-operative patients with OSA or at risk of OSA. A novel, versatile, valved holding chamber for delivering inhaled medications to neonates and small children, laboratory simulation of delivery options, is by de Blasi et al. They tested the Aero Chamber Mini VHC to determine differences in the delivery of hydrofluoralkane propelled albuterol during mechanical ventilation via endotracheal tube, manual resuscitation via endotracheal tube, and spontaneous breathing via face mask. They tested five units of the Aero Chamber Mini VHC. They simulated the tidal breathing of a premature neonate, a term neonate, and a child approximately two years old. Aerosol was collected on an electric filter and quantitatively assayed for albuterol. The total emitted mass of albuterol per actuation that exited the VHC was marginally greater during spontaneous breathing than during manual resuscitation. Albuterol delivery via mechanical ventilation, though comparable with the premature neonate model, the term neonate model, and the two-year-old child model, was significantly lower than in the spontaneous breathing and manual resuscitation models. In the neonatal models, the total emitted mass was similar to the spontaneous breathing model and the manual resuscitation model. The authors conclude that the reduced delivery of albuterol during mechanical ventilation was probably associated with a saturated atmosphere in the breathing circuit compared to the ambient air. Everhart et al. present their paper, Validation of the Asthma Quality of Life Questionnaire with Momentary Assessment of Symptoms and Functional Limitations in Patient Daily Life.
They determined how well the standardized asthma quality of life questionnaire predicts actual asthma symptoms and functional limitations in patients' daily lives. With 91 patients with asthma, they measure quality of life at baseline with the standardized asthma quality of life questionnaire. Each participant then carried a palm-top computer for one week, which signaled the patient five times a day to complete a momentary assessment of his or her asthma symptoms, mood, activities, and peak expiratory flow. Once a day, upon awakening, the participants were asked to enter data on their sleep and nocturnal asthma symptoms. The standardized asthma quality of life questionnaire scores were strongly associated with the momentary assessments of asthma symptoms and patient functioning. The authors concluded that the standardized asthma quality of life questionnaire is a valid tool for assessing asthma symptoms and functional limitations. Performance comparison of four portable oxygen concentrators is by Chatburn and Williams. They tested four portable oxygen concentrator models for oxygen delivery as a function of respiratory rate. They measured oxygen volume per pulse, pulse duration, trigger sensitivity, oxygen concentration in the gas delivered by the portable oxygen concentrator, and relative fraction of inspired oxygen, measured with a setup that included an adult nasal cannula, a model nares, and a lung simulator that has a built-in oxygen sensor. They studied respiratory rates of 15, 20, 25, 30, and 35 breaths per minute at a tidal volume of 500 milliliters. The XPO2 had the highest pulse flow and the freestyle had the lowest, which corresponded to the highest and lowest pulse volumes at setting 2 and at 15 breaths per minute. The range of oxygen concentrations was 90.3 to 93.6%. The Inogen had the shortest pulse delivery time and the XPO2 had the longest. The freestyle had the highest trigger sensitivity and the inogen the lowest. At the maximum settings of all four portable oxygen concentrators, relative FiO2 decreased as respiratory rate increased. The authors concluded that the four portable oxygen concentrator models have markedly different performance, which emphasizes the need to adjust the setting to meet the specific patient's needs at rest and with activity. Next, we have the paper by Baldwin et al., a cleaning and calibration method for the SpiroPro portable spirometer's pneumotachnometer tube in a remote field study. They tested 10 factory-calibrated pneumotachometer tubes. Each use consisted of a full set of spirometry maneuvers per the American Thoracic Society, or ATS, spirometry criteria. The pneumotachometers remained accurate per the ATS criteria for 5 to 9 disinfections, but began to drift toward inaccuracy after the first disinfection. All the pneumotachometers had been inaccurate per the ATS criteria after 10 disinfections. The authors concluded that, in a remote field setting, the SpiroPro pneumotachometer tube can be cleaned and reused five to nine times before it becomes inaccurate per the ATS criteria. However, single use of the SpiroPro pneumotachometers, albeit more costly, provide better data. 
Effective inspired oxygen concentration measured via transtracheal and oral gas analysis is by Markovitz et al. Ten subjects with chronic hypoxemia breathed through a mouthpiece with a sampling probe connected to a mass spectrometer. Four of the ten subjects had transtracheal catheters that allowed direct sampling of tracheal gas. They used oxygen concentrations of 47% and 97%, and flow rates between 1 liter per minute and 8 liters per minute. They also compared oxygen delivery via nasal cannula and transtracheal catheter. Effective FiO2 was delivered from plots of the fractional concentrations of carbon dioxide versus oxygen. They found excellent correlation between the effective FiO2 values from tracheal and oral sampling. With 97% oxygen via nasal cannula, effective FiO2 increased by 2.5% per liter of increased flow. Effective FiO2 reached 45.2% at 5 liters per minute, while PaO2 increased by 12 millimeters mercury per liter of increased flow. With transtracheal catheter, effective FiO2 increased 5% per liter of increased flow, and PaO2 increased by 13 millimeters of mercury per liter of increased flow. The authors conclude that exhaled gas sampled at the mouth accurately reflected the effective FiO2 in the trachea. In relation to inspired oxygen flow, the effective FiO2 was lower than is conventionally thought. Compared to nasal cannula, transtracheal catheter approximately doubled the effective FiO2 at a given flow rate. In vitro evaluation of an active heat and moisture exchanger, the Hygrovent Gold, is by Pelosi et al. They tested the Hygrovent Gold with and without its supplemental heat and moisture options activated, the Hygroback and the Hygrovent S. They measured the absolute humidity using a test lung ventilated at minute volumes of 5, 10, and 15 liters per minute in a normothermic and hypothermic conditions. They also measured the HME's flow resistance and weight after 24 hours and 48 hours. In its active mode, the Hygrovent Gold provided the highest absolute humidity independent of minute volume in both normothermia and hypothermia. The efficiency of the tested HMEs did not change over time. At 24 hours and 48 hours, the increase in weight and flow resistance was highest in the active Hygrovent Gold. The authors concluded that the passive Hygrovent Gold provided adequate heat and moisture in normothermia, but the active Hygrovent Gold provided the highest humidity in both normothermia and hypothermia. Finally, we have the review paper by Han and Liu, Effect of Ventilator Circuit Changes on Ventilator-Associated Pneumonia, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. They searched the Medline, Embase, and Scopus databases and reviewed citations to identify articles that reported the results of randomized controlled trials and sequential comparison studies that provided a clearly defined intervention of circuit changes and the outcome measure of the development of ventilator-associated pneumonia in mechanically ventilated adult patients.
The authors independently assessed the validity of the included studies and extracted data using a pre-designed data collection form. They used a random effect model to combine data from studies that compared circuit changes every two days versus every seven days, and circuit changes at regular intervals versus no routine circuit change. The search yielded 10 reports, which included 19,169 patients. Compared to patients exposed to circuit changes every seven days, patients who receive circuit changes every two days had a higher risk of ventilator-associated pneumonia. Compared to no routine circuit change, changing the ventilator circuit at a two-day or seven-day interval was associated with an odds ratio of 1.126 for ventilator-associated pneumonia. There was a trend of reduced risk of pneumonia as circuit change intervals were extended. The authors conclude that frequent ventilator circuit changes are associated with a high risk of ventilator-associated pneumonia. No routine circuit change is safe and justified. I'm back with some commentary on this month's papers. Early mobilization of critically ill patients has recently received increasing academic and clinical attention. It is thus timely that we report the paper by Borden et al. describing their experience in early rehabilitation of critically ill patients. They report that early rehabilitation is feasible and safe in patients in the intensive care unit for longer than one week. The chair-sitting intervention was the most frequently used and was associated with a non-significant oxygenation improvement. As Hopkins points out in her editorial, critical care providers often think that patients are too sick to tolerate vigorous activity early in their illness. Although ambulation of these patients is difficult and potentially dangerous, accumulating evidence suggests that it is feasible and safe. Another topic receiving much attention in respiratory care practice is the use of high-flow oxygen therapy. Roca et al. compared comfort with a high-flow nasal cannula to that of a conventional face mask in patients with acute respiratory failure. They report that a high-flow nasal cannula compared to a face mask was better tolerated, more comfortable, and associated with better oxygenation and lower respiratory rate. As Anderson points out in his editorial, Oxygen therapy devices do little good if patients will not wear them. Beyond comfort, it is important for future studies to evaluate the mechanisms of potential benefit for a high-flow nasal cannula. There is increased risk of central and obstructive apnea after anesthesia. However, the vast majority of patients with obstructive sleep apnea, or OSA, are underdiagnosed preoperatively. Ramachandran et al. developed a system that identifies patients with suspected or documented OSA and automatically alerts a respiratory therapist. The authors report that this program helps prevent sudden onset acute respiratory compromise in postoperative patients with OSA or at risk of OSA. This relatively simple program could be implemented in other hospitals to improve the postoperative care of patients with OSA. Delivery of bronchodilators to infants and small children from a pressurized meter dose inhaler with valved holding chamber is limited by airway narrowness, short respiratory cycle time, and small tidal volume. 
De Blasi et al. describe a versatile valved holding chamber for delivering inhaled medications to neonates and small children. In a bench study, they evaluated this device during mechanical ventilation via an endotracheal tube, manual resuscitation via an endotracheal tube, and spontaneous breathing by face mask. Although these data suggest that delivery of pressurized meter dose inhaler to preterm and term neonates and small children with obstructive lung disease is possible, the results need to be clinically validated. Everhart et al. validated the asthma quality of life questionnaire with assessments of symptoms and functional limitations in 91 patients during their normal daily lives. In this ecological momentary assessment, they found that the asthma quality of life questionnaire was a valid tool for assessing asthma symptoms and functional limitations. It correctly predicted asthma symptoms, mood, sleep interference, and activity restrictions in asthma patients' daily lives over a one-week interval. In recent years, portable oxygen concentrators have become commercially available. Chatburn and Williams evaluated performance of four of these devices. At the maximum settings with all four devices, the oxygen concentration range was about 29% to 31% at 15 breaths per minute and about 23% to 25% at 30 breaths per minute. The four devices evaluated have markedly different performance, which emphasizes the need to adjust the setting on the device to meet the specific patient's needs with rest and with activity. Baldwin et al. developed a systematic method of cleaning and calibration checking for the pneumotachometer tube of the Spiro Probe portable spirometer that maximized spirometry accuracy in a remote area of Nepal. They found that the pneumotachometer tube can be cleaned and reused five to nine times before it becomes inaccurate. However, vigorous rinsing in distilled water and repeated calibration checks at various flows up to 12 liters per minute are required for precise and accurate spirometry with the Spiro Pro. Reusing the Spiro Pro pneumotachometer in a remote setting may impose measurement bias and thus single use of pneumotachometers will provide better data. Textbooks provide estimates for the FiO2 for different oxygen delivery systems, but variations in inspiratory flow and tidal volume make precise measurement difficult. Markovitz et al. developed a reliable method of measuring the effective FiO2 in patients receiving supplemental oxygen. Effective FiO2 was derived from plots of the fractional concentrations of carbon dioxide and oxygen. They report that exhaled gas sampled at the mouth accurately reflected the FiO2 in the trachea. Interestingly, the effective FiO2 was lower than what is conventionally thought. Compared to a nasal cannula, the transtracheal catheter approximately doubled the effective FiO2 at a given flow. Pelosi et al. performed an in vitro evaluation of an active heat and moisture exchanger, the HydroVent Gold. This is a hybrid device, meaning that it adds heat and water. They tested this device with and without its supplemental heat and moisture options activated and compared it to two other commercially available heat and moisture exchangers. They found that the passive HydroVent Gold provided adequate heat and moisture during normothermia, but when used as an active device provided the highest humidity in both normothermia and hypothermia. 
Recent guidelines concerning prevention of ventilator-associated pneumonia recommend that ventilator circuits should not be changed routinely, but in practice, clinicians persist in making circuit changes at regular intervals. Han and Liu conducted a systematic review and meta-analysis on the effect of ventilator circuit changes on ventilator-associated pneumonia. There was a trend of reduced risk of pneumonia as circuit change intervals were extended. In fact, frequent ventilator circuit changes are associated with a high risk of ventilator-associated pneumonia. As the authors correctly conclude, no routine circuit change is safe and justified. Hospital infection control policies and bedside practitioners should translate this evidence into clinical practice. In this month's case report, Rice et al. describe a case of transudative chylothorax associated with sclerosing mesenteritis. The teaching case of the month by Salerno describes a case of sarcoidosis pleural effusion. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.